Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to class. We've got some music playing. Hopefully this will sound familiar. See if you can figure out what it is and why we might be playing it. So I'm guessing you figured out that is Oh God Our Help in Ages Past, this time coming to us from a recording in Westminster Abbey. And if you have previewed the letter tonight, you will probably have some idea about why that particular choral selection, which is certainly one Lewis would have known, is particularly appropriate for the letter that we'll be talking about tonight. So, before we jump in, let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of this time together this evening. We thank you for this chance to explore the wisdom of this particular letter and what we can learn from Lewis's writings about these important topics that seem perhaps even more relevant now than when they were actually written. Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn our hearts to you and that we would apply our hearts to wisdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as usual, I would like for us to begin by saying together our verse from Ephesians about spiritual warfare, about the reality of the battle against evil in which we find ourselves. So uh, I would encourage you to say this aloud with me. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is a tremendous verse and such a great reminder of the battle that we see playing out before us, and particularly right now in these times of unrest and unsettledness all around the world, we can see perhaps more clearly than usual the forces of evil uh, that are at play and wreaking havoc in our world. And it means it is all the more important for those of us who know the truth of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ to be standing firm and speaking in these times. So as we go tonight to uh, the letters, uh, we see that there's been a little bit of a shift. We've gotten a little bit away from the patient and uh, his uh, girlfriend and a little bit more of a focus on some of the other themes that Lewis wants to bring to light through the eyes of Screwtape. And as we think again about why we are studying these letters, the, I just want us to be reminded of this framework that we need to understand the battle in which we find ourselves, to realize that it is a battle and that there is an enemy. Secondly, that we need to learn how to think Christianly. As things happen, and a lot has happened in our world uh, in 2020, uh, many things that were not expected and things that can be hard to get our heads around, we need to think through these things from a Christian perspective and from a Christian worldview. Thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation. If we understand how the devil wants to get after us, what he's looking to do and how he tries to do it, we're much more likely to be able to resist him, to be aware of what he's doing, and to stand firm. Next, there are profound lessons in this book about habits to cultivate that deepen our faith in Christ. Habit and obedience are some of the least popular words in our culture right now. We want to be in the moment doing what we feel like when we want to do it without anyone telling us any differently. But the fact of the matter is that both habit and obedience, and particularly those two together, habits of obedience, are ways through which the Holy Spirit works in our lives that we need to cultivate. And lastly, our hope is that through looking at this book, looking at how to annoy the devil, that it will enable us to lead a boldly Christian life, one that makes a difference for the gospel and one where we are standing firm for the truth of Jesus Christ. So we've talked over and over about the importance of habits, and I just want to commend to you again uh, that book, The Common Rule by Justin Early, uh, which is a great book about recovering some of the wisdom of the past, something very relevant for our lesson tonight, uh, by adopting some habits that have helped form Christians throughout the centuries. So to go back and rehearse some of the habits from previous letters, and as we've said, part of the reason we do this and repeat 
is because repetition is one of the ways that habits become ingrained in our lives. So going back to letter 23, you'll remember in that letter that Screwtape is berating Wormwood. Sometimes you almost feel sorry for poor Wormwood. But in this letter, he's berating him because he has let the patient spend time in the household of this Christian girl. And in that household is not only her family, but a whole circle of people who are deeply committed and intelligent Christians who are talking with each other about their faith, encouraging one another to apply their faith in their day-to-day -day lives. And Screwtape is appalled by this. So the habit we should practice is proactively getting to know and spend time with committed, intelligent Christians, not just being together, but engaging in our faith and talking about what it means to live Christianly in our world today. The second habit is to be watchful about mixing theology and politics. One of the things that Screwtape says is that if you can get the patient to get his politics and his faith so mixed up that he can't tell one from the other, all sorts of wonderful things from Satan's perspective will result. And we see so much of that in our culture right now and the dividedness in which we find ourselves. And so often that is because Christians have let themselves become identified or stereotyped with a political position um, that is often at odds with the gospel. And so it is important that we speak as Christians Certainly politics are important, but the gospel is the truth to which we must hold. Thirdly, beware of new constructions of the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus uh, really is something that grew out of the historical critical uh, theological studies in the 19th century in German seminaries, but they've infected uh, a lot of Christians and a lot of what purports to be scholarship, but is actually uh, innovation. And so this historical Jesus idea is that the Jesus that we know in the Gospels isn't the real Jesus, and that we have to strip away all of the veneer uh, and the accoutrements, and we have to find the historical Jesus. And this historical Jesus is reinvented about every 30 years and all tied up with some cause or another. But that is not what we find in the Word of God, and that is what we need to cling to, the truth of the Word of God. Fourthly, we need to focus on our relationship with Jesus, with worshiping him, his real presence, and not just reduce Jesus to a good moral teacher. Jesus certainly was a good moral teacher, the greatest in the history of the world, but that is not what he came to do. What he came to do was to save us from our sins, to transfer us from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And we need to remember that what we want to do is to be in relationship with him, not to just know about him, but to know him. And related to that, the fifth habit, hold fast 
to the centrality of Jesus's resurrection and God's plan of salvation for the world. Again, Jesus's teaching is beautiful and wonderful, and the world would be much better off if we followed it. But just knowing his teaching is not enough. What Jesus did to transform the world was to enter into it because he is very God. His incarnation of coming into the world to save us from our sins, proving his love for us through his death on the cross and his mighty resurrection. Those are the things that transformed the disciples and brought the church into being in the first place. And we need to focus our lives around those things. Sixthly, live proactively each day in the understanding of Christ's kingdom as the truth and the overarching reality, not submitting to pressure that the gospel is just a means to an end. From the 24th letter, the first habit, be wary of making assumptions about those who do not share your beliefs. We have seen this week in the violence that has overtaken our country, what happens when stereotypes and prejudice uh, infect people's hearts. And it is a reminder to us as Christians that we are to be ambassadors of reconciliation, that we are to seek to understand others and not to just make assumptions about them. The second habit is to beware of spiritual pride as one of the devil's strongest vices. In this letter, we see Satan literally uh, speaking through uh, screw tape about the glee that there is in hell when Christians embrace spiritual pride because it renders the gospel message mute because it cannot be heard above the pride and arrogance of our own positions. Thirdly, cultivate humility and an awareness of your own unworthiness except for Christ. In those times where we focus on how amazing Christ's redemptive love was that he came and died for us while we were yet sinners, that will turn our hearts to thanks and praise and worship of him. And it will remind us that whatever righteousness we may think we have is filthy rags without Jesus Christ. His merit is the only merit that we can claim. Fourthly, flee from embracing any sort of superior inner ring. That idea of being in the know or being better than others or thinking that you are superior or that your group is better than another group, all of those kinds of things feed insidiously that spiritual pride that makes us unwittingly become pawns of what Satan wants to accomplish. And then fifthly, flee the temptation to believe that those who agree with you in every particular are the only real Christians. We need to hold fast, of course, to the word of God, but we need to realize that everyone calling on the name of Jesus Christ and holding to the creeds and the word of God deserves at least to be listened to even when we disagree with them, because perhaps we might be wrong. Uh, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and to help us to seek after truth with a capital T, 
because the gospel when we focus on Jesus and the gospel and look at him and his truth that is where our unity is found and then in the 25th letter first center your bond of fellowship in your common faith in Jesus Christ mutual interests are a wonderful thing in relationships but Christians need to find their unity in Christ and particularly in times like these that unity and that visible unity despite our outward differences is all the more important second beware of letting your faith be co-opted by any cause that you might embrace again we see this being played out all around us right now and the idea must remain central for Christians that our faith is more important than any cause and that the gospel is ultimately the only hope for the world thirdly enjoy the rhythm and predictability of each season of the calendar year and also of each season of life Satan loves to foment discontent in us where we are always looking for the next thing and we are not content with where we are and what the scriptures remind us is that there is a season for everything and if we will look hard enough in each season there's beauty and there's blessing but we need to put on the lens of the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God to be able to see that the fourth habit avoid the horror of the same old thing and reject the incessant quest for novelty Lewis has so much brilliant stuff to say about this not only in this letter but in his other writings but how this quest for novelty and innovation gets us in so much trouble because we leave behind the moorings we leave behind the signpost and the guidepost that we are given um, not only in the Word of God but in the accumulated wisdom of Christians generations of Christians before us more about that in tonight's letter and then the fifth habit be wary of adopting fashions especially spiritual ones that may blind you to the real dangers of your time we all get caught up in things that we think are wrong and that need to be changed but often what screw tape is saying Satan uses this to distract us from what the real errors are from what really drives people away from the gospel in our times and that we need to be alert to that sixth resist discarding the wisdom of the past and favor of the ideas whose only virtue is that they are new or progressive again more on that in the letter tonight but the idea is that we believe that wisdom is sort of like an iPhone that a new iPhone is always better than an old one it can do more and once you get the new one why would you want to have anything to do with the old one it's only good for throwing out or maybe putting in a technology museum and Lewis was very wary of the impact that this sort of thinking would have on faith and on philosophy and indeed on the culture of the world because when we believe automatically that new is better we set ourselves up to fall into any kind of deceptive trap of the enemy and then from letter 26 
Be proactive in positive virtue and do not define your faith in terms of what you do not do. This is that whole idea of what it means to become a Pharisee. It is the glory of Screwtape and his father below when Christians become Pharisees. When instead of being the people who are the ambassadors of the love of Jesus Christ, who follow the great commandment that Jesus said is the most important thing, so much more important than anything else, indeed the thing that sums up all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the scripture, is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And when we become so consumed with judging sin of um, putting down other people before we love them, we have lost the core of the gospel. The second habit is be wary of defining selfishness on your own terms, judging the selfishness of others, but turning a blind eye to your own. This is that whole idea of why it is so important to practice empathy. Empathy is something that is commended in the scriptures, and it is an idea that is so important for Christians to understand. Because when we think that selfishness defined only the way that makes us comfortable is the only kind of selfishness, we have literally become blind. Thirdly, practice clear and honest communication speaking the truth in love. And so often Satan trips up the church here where the church speaks truth as it should. Speaking truth is one of the roles that all of us are called to. But the problem is when we speak the truth without speaking in love, we are, as St. Paul says, a clanging cymbal and a loud noise, something that no one wants to hear. But often the church falls to the other extreme as well, of speaking love, of commending love, which is absolutely right. We just talked about that that is the greatest commandment to love. But when we love and we ignore the truth and we ignore sin and we ignore things that are harmful to people made in the image of God, we fall prey to what Satan wants and that whole idea of confusing us so that we don't do what gives power to the gospel, which is to speak the truth in love. And in an age where truth and love are both in short supply, the Christian voice has never been more needed. Fourthly, beware accumulating grudges. Scripture tells us from the Old Testament all the way through the New, that bearing grudges, having a chip on our shoulder, not being people of forgiveness, uh, will poison us, will make us bitter, and it will make us unable to preach the gospel. We are to be people of forgiveness. Uh, there's that beautiful parable that Jesus tells about how many times we are to forgive our brother. And the passage shows us that it is over and over and over again because we need to remind ourselves constantly how much we have been forgiven by God. And the fifth habit, practice
practice serving in humble, loving charity without expectation of notice or reward. We are not to be about virtue signaling of saying, look at me, look at what I did. I am righteous. No, 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 no. We are to practice love and service where we realize that we are working as for the Lord and not for men. And that any glory that comes or any notice that comes needs to be turned right around and given to God so that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So that brings us to this week's letter, to this beautiful letter 27, which uh, enables Lewis to talk about some themes that are once more unbelievably relevant to the days in which we find ourselves. So let us jump in. My dear Wormwood, you seem to be doing very little good at present. The use of the patient's love to distract his mind from the enemy is of course obvious, but you reveal what poor use you are making of it when you say that the whole question of distraction and the wandering mind has now become one of the chief subjects of his prayers. That means you have largely failed. When this or any other distraction crosses his mind, you ought to encourage him to thrust it away by sheer willpower and to try to continue the normal prayer as if nothing had happened. Once he accepts the distraction as his present problem and lays that before the enemy and makes it the main theme of his prayers and his endeavors, then so far from doing good, you have done harm. Anything, even a sin, which has the total effect of moving him close to the enemy, makes against us in the long run. A promising line is the following. Now that he is in love, a new idea of earthly happiness has arisen in his mind and hence a new urgency in his purely petitionary prayers about this war and other such matters. Now is the time for raising intellectual difficulties about prayer of that sort. False spirituality is always to be encouraged. On the seemingly pious ground that praise and communion with God is the true prayer, Humans can often be lured into direct disobedience to the enemy, who in his usual flat, commonplace, uninteresting way has definitely told them to pray for their daily bread and the recovery of their sick. You will, of course, conceal from him the fact that the prayer for daily bread interpreted in a spiritual sense is really just as crudely petitionary as it is in any other sense. But since your patient has contracted the terrible habit of obedience, he will probably continue such crude prayers whatever you do. But you can worry him with the haunting suspicion that the practice is absurd and can have no objective result. 
don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that petitionary prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the physical causes that led up to it, and therefore it would have happened anyway, and thus a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. You, being a spirit, will find it difficult to understand how he gets into this confusion. But you must remember that he takes time for an ultimate reality. He supposes that the enemy, like himself, sees some things as present, remembers others as past, and anticipates others as future, or even if he believes that the enemy does not see things that way, yet in his heart of hearts he regards this as a peculiarity of the enemy's mode of perception. He doesn't really think, though he would say he did, that things as the enemy sees them are things as they are. If you tried to explain to him that men's prayers today are one of the innumerable coordinates with which the enemy harmonizes the weather of tomorrow, he would reply that the enemy always knew men were going to make those prayers, and if so, they did not pray freely, but were predestined to do so. And he would add that the weather on a given day can be traced back through its causes to the original creation of matter itself, so that the whole thing, both on the human and the material side, is given from the word go. What he ought to say, of course, is obvious to us that the problem of adapting the particular weather to the particular prayers is merely the appearance, at two points in its temporal mode of perception, of the total problem of adapting the whole spiritual universe to the whole corporeal universe, that creation in its entirety operates at every point of space and time, or rather that their kind of consciousness forces them to encounter the whole self-consistent creative act as a series of successive events. Why that creative act leaves room for their free will is the problem of problems, the secret behind the enemy's nonsense about love. How it does so is no problem at all, for the enemy does not foresee the humans making their free contributions in a future, but sees them doing so in his unbounded now. And obviously, to watch a man doing something is not to make him do it. It may be replied that some meddlesome human writers, notably Boethius, have let this secret out. But in the intellectual climate which we have at last succeeded in producing throughout Western Europe, you needn't bother about that. Only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are of all men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. We have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. 
the historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement and an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books and what phase in the writer's development or in the general history of thought it illustrates and how it affected later writers and how often it has been misunderstood, especially by the learned man's own colleagues and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last 10 years and what is the present state of the question. To regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge to anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or your behavior, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded. And since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is the most important thing to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. But thanks be to our father and the historical point of view, great scholars are now as little nourished by the past as the most ignorant mechanic who holds that history is bunk. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, once again, there is a lot in this particular letter and a lot that we would do well to consider, to think about, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest because it has uh, a lot of strong medicine for some of the uh, diseases that infect the way that we think about truth. So the first habit from this letter, practice an open and honest prayer life that addresses the real issues in your life. You remember in the beginning of the letter that Screwtape says, when the patient's feeling distracted, the last thing that you want the patient to pray about is the distraction and to ask for God's help with that. What Screwtape wants is for the patient to think, well, that's very unspiritual of me to have a wandering mind and I need to just power through this even more. Satan does not want us to be honest in our prayers. So if we want to annoy the devil, bringing to him the whole of what is on our hearts and minds, our doubts, our fears, our anger, our sadness, our joy, whatever it may be, we need to bring all of it to the Lord. And one of the beautiful things about the scriptures is they're full of injunctions to do just that. Listen to these words. This is from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And then from Psalm 62. 
Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And then from Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And there are so many more about how God knows our hearts, but he wants us to pour them out to him. That is one of the great beauties of the book of Psalms, is seeing how the psalmist opens his heart, every bit of it, to God and pours it all out right before him. So let us have done with prayers where we're trying to sound spiritual and embrace the habit of honestly praying to God with all of our heart. The second habit, contract the terrible habit of obedience to God in prayer and in all of life. I love this phrase from Screwtape because he's berating Wormwood because Wormwood let the patient contract a habit. Just as we've been talking about, one of the things that makes the devil crazy and annoys him is when we develop habits. And here he's contracted I love that word. It's like it was a disease to screw tape. He's contracted the terrible habit of obedience. My friends, we would do well to contract the habit of obedience ourselves, the habit of obedience in prayer and in all of life. We don't like to talk about obedience because we are a culture so focused on feelings. And screw tape is all about this. Remember in earlier letters we've heard all about by all means let him feel this way and that way compassion for this solidarity with that but don't let him take any action don't let him be obedient and it's no accident that screw tape realizes that these habits of obedience are the very thing that will undermine satan's work in our lives listen to these words from scripture uh, from way back in first samuel chapter 15 has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And then in the book of James, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And then from Jesus, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus tells us over and over again to keep his commandments, that if we listen to his word and do it, then we will be like the house built on the rock. Yet all too often, we think of obedience as somehow something dry, something that's not really... Um, compatible with the love of God. And we misunderstand because Jesus tells us that the pathway of loving God is through obedience to his word. God's word shows us how to live in such a way that we embrace the image of God within us and we stay true to what he desires for us to become. 
Thirdly, cultivate an eternal perspective and realize that God sees everything in his unbounded now with a capital N. This is a strong reminder to us of a theme that shows up in a lot of Lewis's writing, that we need to remember that God himself is outside of time. He is the creator of time. He sees all time before him at once. God exists in many more dimensions than we do. And this always reminds me of that old kindergarten project of Flat Stanley, where you make a paper doll cutout named Stanley, and then during summer vacation, you take him with you and get a picture taken, back in my day, it was a Polaroid, of you with Flat Stanley in front of Niagara Falls or the beach in Florida or maybe the Eiffel Tower. But Flat Stanley didn't experience those places. He was taken there, but he didn't experience them. He was just uh, a creature of what he was uh, brought to do by the one controlling him. But we knew where we were going. We knew what we were doing. Uh, we planned it. We knew it was going to happen. We knew that we were going to take the picture. All of those things. It's a reminder that God is in a different sphere of reality than we are. He is transcendent. Yes, at the same time, he is eminent. He is here with us, but he transcends our time. This is that kind of abstract thinking that's hard for us to get our heads around. So don't worry about that as part of the mystery of God. But we do need to live into the truth that the scripture teaches about this. Uh, that hymn that we heard at the beginning is a great one to think about. It's drawn right out of the scriptures. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, uh, our shelter from the stormy past, and our eternal home, a thousand ages in thy sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all her sons away. They fly forgotten as a dream, flies at the opening day. My friends, we are but grass, but God is eternal, and we need to remember that. Listen to these words. This is from Psalm 90. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. And then from 2 Timothy 1, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then Ecclesiastes 3, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. And then this beautiful passage from 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
This is an important principle because when we have an eternal perspective and a kingdom of God perspective, it helps us to have a different framework than those that we see just in the world. And you'll remember in this part that Lewis mentions a little bit about Boethius. And Boethius was probably the most prominent philosopher that influenced the Latin and the medieval church. And his book, De Consolationi Philosophi, uh, The Consolation of Philosophy, was the most important text in most libraries of the Middle Ages for literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is a great shame that's going to relate to our next habit that most of us have never even heard of him. Uh, I have uh, put together a little excerpt from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Don't let that scare you. Uh, to put together a little uh, handout for you about Boethius that I will send out in the email uh, next week. And I would commend that to you. Boethius did a lot of amazing work uh, as somebody who was a devout Christian and a brilliant philosopher. And he engages themes that are so very important for us today. And again, just as I talk about that email, a reminder, if you're listening to this or watching it and you're not on our email list, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston, go to our website and send me an email, and I will be happy to add you to the distribution list for class so you can get those materials. So that brings us to the fourth habit, avoid embracing the fallacies of the historical point of view and deconstructionism. And this whole idea of the historical point of view is related to what we talked about a few letters ago in the horror of the same old thing. But here Lewis is pointing particularly to the idea of the academy, to those who are guiding the learning and the wisdom of the age. And the problem that we have that's developed really in the 20th century, particularly of people who are learned, people who are educated uh, and are professors in universities being the ones who are least susceptible to talking about the truth because they have adopted a worldview that says anything that is historical is ipso facto outmoded and perhaps not even worth learning from. And one of the very interesting things about this letter is Lewis says that what has happened is that these intellectuals look at works from the ancient world, instead of looking at them for what they say, they look at them for what were the presuppositions and the narratives of the age. What were the oppressions going on? What were the um, things that were going on in the world that made us, uh, should make us look back with doubt on anything that they say because they are not as enlightened as we are. And the remarkable thing about the way Lewis expresses this in the letter is he talks about the whole deconstructionist movement before it ever actually really happened. Um, Jacques Derrida is the founder of deconstructionism, if you will, 
and he was a French uh, philosopher and intellectual, but his work didn't really start coming to the fore um, to the 1960s and 70s. And this is the time that you saw a revolution in the way uh, works from the past are taught and where you also saw the whole canon of Western civilization being thrown out, um, often using the phrase, um, works of dead white men. And the very notion is that we're supposed to disrespect those works because they were written by men and therefore there's a patriarchal oppression of wisdom women that is going on in all of these works and therefore they are to be discounted. Now, of course, this is objectively ridiculous, but deconstructionism is the primary movement at work in schools today not just in universities anymore, but all the way down to elementary school. And it is the reason that the great works of the past, heroic children's literature, the scriptures, all of these things have been thrown out in favor of what is new, of voices of the oppressed and all those things. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot to be learned from other voices, but it doesn't mean that we throw out the accumulated wisdom of the human race, and particularly not the accumulated wisdom of generations of Christians. Listen to what the scriptures say about wisdom. First, 1 Corinthians 3. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. And then from Proverbs, uh, something said over and over again in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then from Second Timothy, a verse we've heard before, but one that so describes our times. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is such an important thing for us to get our heads around because for many of us, we have unconsciously bought into this. Uh, there is a great essay that Lewis wrote as a preface for St. Athanasius's seminal work on the Incarnation, a work that I commend to you uh, to express the wonder and mystery of the Incarnation. Most of us don't read people who were Christians from the 5th century, but Lewis did. And in his preface to this book, which has been published separately as an essay on reading old books, Lewis says, as Christians, we might think about disciplining ourselves to only read a new book once we've read an old book, to alternate back and forth between the two. But that leads us to the fifth habit. Seek proactively to learn from the wisdom of the past, especially Christian wisdom. Listen to these verses from the Word of God, from Ephesians 5. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. From Psalm 90, teach us how to number our days, 
that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And then from Deuteronomy 32, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. Now I want to hasten to say what Lewis is saying here is not that everything that happened in the past is wisdom, but that there is wisdom in the past and that there are some things like the eternal word of God which never change, that the word of God is always sharper than a two-edged sword. And the sad thing is that our culture has thrown out the word of God and put ourselves in judgment over it, said that we don't need to obey the word of God. We need to reform the word of God because they weren't enlightened enough back when those words were written. My friends, that is straight from Screwtape's heart when that kind of thinking comes into the church. One of the great things that we have as Christians is a treasure trove of people who have followed Jesus Christ for generations and generations and generations. And I would commend to you reading some of the church fathers like Athanasius, like Boethius, or even just going back to the 19th century, like that great uh, Bishop of Liverpool I quoted in the Pentecost sermon, J.C. Ryle. Uh, he is as fresh today, maybe even more fresh than he was in the 19th century. Or John Donne, the great poet, who many people do not realize was an Anglican priest and the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral and wrote many brilliant godly sermons that can help us today to live our faith. So I commend to you this idea of embracing the wisdom that is accumulated in people that have followed Jesus Christ faithfully and not being ignorant. Uh, there also is uh, a great essay I would commend to you by Dorothy Sayers, uh, the woman who was Lewis's dear friend and um, in some ways almost an honorary inkling. The inklings, of course, was an all-men uh, group. But Dorothy Sayers had very much the same mindset, and she wrote a brilliant essay that's called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning that helps point out so much of what is wrong with the way that we do education today. So uh, in the email, uh, I will uh, attach a copy of that essay as well. The Boethius essay, I commend to all of you, but it may be uh, that uh, if you're not scuba diving, you don't want to persevere through all of it. But if you are scuba diving, please read all of that, because even though it is seven pages, uh, it is rich and it will stretch your mind and your thinking. So this letter gives us a lot of wisdom. Uh, the habits give us a lot of ways to encourage uh, thinking Christianly and contracting the terrible habit of obedience. And I want to just say one thing uh, before we close about wisdom from the past right now, because in our country and in the world at large, there's a lot of protest against injustice right now. And there's a lot of rhetoric and dissension about how 
Christians should deal with this. And one of the things that I would commend to you uh, is the writings of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Many of us know a little bit about Dr. King, um, but unfortunately the narrative that's taught in schools now leaves out the fact that King was first and foremost a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of his wisdom and strategies were rooted in his understanding of the gospel. We may not agree with him in every particular, but he has much wisdom that could be brought to bear on our current situation. But the problem is most people have only read a few quotations and have never read deeply in his works. So I'd commend to you to study some of what Dr. King had to say about violence, about loving your enemy, all of these kinds of things that are so very important in our current time. So as we close, I invite you to join me in saying that great uh, excerpt from letter eight about obedience. Imagine that after such a theme in this letter tonight. Our cause is never more in danger, Wormwood, than a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your servant C.S. Lewis, wisdom that is grounded in your word and in the witness of faithful Christian brothers and sisters through the ages. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to wisdom, that you would plant your word firmly in our lives, and that you would help all of us to contract the terrible habit of obedience, that our words, our thoughts, our actions, our character, our habits might be pleasing to you and might represent your love and your kingdom in a powerful way to a hurting world. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I look forward to being with you again next week virtually, and I commend to you the study of this letter. And as we say in Narnia, further up and further in.